Welcome to the GB News Real Me podcast. I'm Gloria DiPiero. Now, we all have views on politics and politicians, but aside from the spin and the knockabout, who are they? What makes them tick? What's their life story? And why have they chosen a life in politics? That's what the Real Me podcast is all about. We hope you enjoy a very different type of political interview. this episode, I spoke with Conservative MP for Hemel Hempstead, Mike Penning. Mike served in the army and was a firefighter before being elected as an MP in 2005. Since then, he's held positions including Justice Minister, Policing Minister and Minister for Disabled People. We started by reminiscing over his most memorable moments in the army. Interestingly enough, right at the start, when I joined as a boy soldier, one of the things you had to do was an apprenticeship and carry on with education, even, even back then. And the education officer said to me after a couple of weeks, do you know you're dyslexic? And I said, is that some kind of tropical disease or something? I had no idea what the man was talking about. And at school in those days, you were just dim, which is what I was told I was while I was at school. So to be told that actually that, that you have a learning difficulty and we can help you with that, is the most memorable thing by far for me in my whole life. One man believed in me and put me on a course. Gosh. And you live with that, because you're dyslexic, you live with it forever. So if you notice when I'm in the House of Commons, when I was a minister or even now, I memorise my speeches, um, which is, a, some say was a skill. I, it is I, a skill. I see it as a hindrance, but I memorise my speeches. My civil servants used to have heart attacks, of course, when I was at the dispatch box, but I seem to have managed it okay. Wow. So tell me about your current day struggles. What does being dyslexic mean to you today? Well, I can read, and I, and I, and I, but I just, I just struggle sometimes to interpret what's on the page compared to what my brain is telling me. I often, if I scribble down, because the B will be missing, for instance, in the type of dyslexia I, I have. But, it, it, but if I start reading from a text, I become enormously wooden. Um, and I've got a bit of a lisp anyhow, and so that makes, I consciously think that's even worse. Um, but literally, from that moment onwards, I don't think it held me back. It you just, just needed the diagnosis. I just needed someone to say, actually, you're not just a naughty boy, which I was, and the army was brilliant for me in, in that context. Um, but actually, there's a way around this, fella. We can work with you. What do you mean you were a naughty boy? I... I think I like a lot of children who can't relate and teenagers that can't relate to what's going on around them, you rebel. And, you know, when I was at school, the, the cane was in full operation. It meant after a while, absolutely nothing to those who were getting it regularly. But what it didn't, what the, some of the teachers felt is that you can almost beat this naughtiness out. And what it was is that what you were talking about at that blackboard in that room, I most of the time had no idea what you were talking about. Um, and certainly, I, and it, it's, mathematics isn't my greatest subject either, but you, you can work on that. And that, that's it, dyslexia works in it. So was I disruptive at school? Yes. Um, but at the end of the day, I, 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 felt, I still feel to this day that I was let down by the education system simply because it was early days for diagnosis of dyslexia, but they knew about it and they wasn't willing to assist in the way that I got assistance later on. Can you believe we were caning children in your lifetime? Yes. I remember it vividly. 
But Thank it, it was, but it was, it was strange, you know, because that was the you, you stood outside the headmaster's office. You were being disruptive. You know, that's the second time this week you're going to get six of the best. And and interestingly enough, when you went back out into the playground later, you was it was a badge of honour. It was like, yeah, not, not again. No, don't worry about it. I can take it. But it can hurt. And very often when I went home, I got you know another dose as well. So, I'm. Um, it's yes. It, it was a methodology that was used then, but the likes of me never really helped to control me in any way, shape or form. What, interestingly enough, while I wouldn't take that sort of discipline particularly well, I took the army discipline almost straight away, but I played rugby and I played rugby since I was 11 years of age. And one of the sports you have to be really disciplined in is rugby. And you can probably tell by the nose uh, that sometimes I didn't, I didn't duck as often as I should. And I boxed and I well into my twenties. And discipline in the ring is absolutely spot on. And yet I was rebellious, but I would take discipline. And to this day, you'll get, I know kids in my own patch, in my own constituency that are really struggling at school, being expelled, being you know, excluded from school. But on a Sunday morning, they're there with the other 300 kids at the rugby club, taking absolute discipline from someone they respect and doing something they want to do, because they probably understand that. I feel, I understand that feeling. So you serve our country, uh, you leave the army, and then you become a firefighter. Mm. That is two very, very <laughs> noble jobs. How hard has it been? Well, I'm no hero. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I joined the army at 16. I didn't make corporal. Uh, well, I made acting corporal a couple of times and, and didn't succeed in going any further than that. Um, and I, yes, I served in Northern Ireland, but so did thousands of other of our colleagues. Um, and I came out of the army um, because I met a young lady and I thought, right, this is not going to work while I'm in the army. So I applied to leave. I'd done enough service to get out in those days. And a couple of weeks after I came home, I was dumped. Um, that, that's life. And, um, and not being able to go home because I didn't have a particularly settled life at home with a family. I went back in um, and I, I then went back in into the Royal Army Medical Corps re-enlisted and then when I left a couple of years later, three years later, um, I applied for the Met Police, Met Fire Brigade, London Fire, uh, Essex Fire Brigade and Essex Police and Essex Fire Brigade offered me a flat if I passed my basic training and as a single person leaving the armed forces the hardest thing is to adjust which is why I do a lot with veterans and trying to help as much as possible and having somewhere and that adjustment is often where do you sleep at night and I was so lucky that I passed my training in the fire brigade and got posted to sunny Basildon, where I had my first flat. And I remember it so well, walking through the door. It was mine. It wasn't, it was the council's actually, but that's not the point. Being a firefighter must bring some tough experiences. I think I was lucky in that I could bring some of the experiences, weren't particularly pleasant, especially from Northern Ireland, um, in. The fire brigade was very frustrating for me. I was a qualified paramedic. We call them battlefield medics in these days. So I, you know, I, I had skills to save people's life at the major trauma areas. And I was made in those days to take a first aid certificate because there was no civilian qualification. We didn't have paramedics on the street like we do now, thank goodness. Um, so the frustration was there. It was very unionized. I mean, I was a branch secretary of the Fire Brigade were Union. You? Were you a Tory uh, then while you were a branch secretary of the FBU? I wasn't anything really. I was just Mike, you know, and that's probably what most people think I am today, really. Um, 
But one of the things I felt very hard about is that if you're a branch secretary and you're then a delegate, so you're told to what you to do and what to say at the next stage up. And so that lasted about five minutes. So I couldn't. But it was just after the big fire brigade strike as well. So the, there was a lot of turmoil within the fire service nationally. But in other ways, it was so similar to being in the army and being with your, your mates. Um, you know, because you slept on the station together, you know, because the beds were there in those days. You, you did a two days, two nights, four days off, which meant all of us had different jobs elsewhere. Terry Marsh became a world boxing champion. I went through training with him. So we all had different types of jobs, not the same as Terry though. But yeah, I, I, I loved it. Um, but I didn't, I don't think um, the entrepreneur in me was, was pushing through a little bit. I wanted to do more and more. Um, and I was, you know, my father's business had failed and dad had gone and mum took over the business. She couldn't cope. So I then helped to try and run that while I was still in the fire brigade, which was never going to work. And then sadly, you know, I, I had a, an incident, as they say, and they decided that my knee wasn't good enough to carry on in the fire service, so off I went. That's life. You go and work for the family business. While you're at the fire brigade, you're, you're a union official for a short time, but you say you weren't anything politically, but you end up working for the Maastricht rebels mm. when they had the, the whip withdrawn yeah. from them under John Major. You go on to work for William Hague. You then work for Ian Duncan Smith. What happens between I was just Mike to... Um, really, just fate, interestingly enough, um, and, and luck. Um, I was still in a four-leg cast. Um, I knew I was going to almost certainly be out of the, out of the fire brigade. And I wrote, never met the guy, never knew anything. Someone said to me, why don't you write the RMP and see what, you know, what help is out there available? I didn't, literally, I had no idea. And I just wrote to a guy called Sir Teddy Taylor, who was the MP in Southend. I'd never met him. He wrote back, and I still got this letter today. Um, he had typed the letter personally on an old clunk-click typewriter, which people forget if you hit the key really hard, you punched a hole through the paper, especially on O's and P's and things like that. And this letter had a, <laughs> had a cigarette burn in the other because Teddy could smoke 70, 80 Dunhill a day, literally, chain smoked, and a coffee stain in the other side. But one paragraph said, I've no idea how I can help, but let's try. And I gave his pass back in 2005 when I became an MP. Interesting. He then introduced me um, to a guy called Henry McQuarrie, who was then the political editor at The Express. I didn't know at the time, I'd never even thought about it, but I was writing copy for people in their name. So Teddy, I would send press releases out and get, and then Henry was turning around and saying, well, I'll pay you for that copy. We'll do this, do this. I became a freelancer in the press gallery um, and ended up um, just by coincidence looking after those that had lost a whip. Teddy lost a whip over, Ma over not over Maastricht so much, over Europe afterwards when we were called Eurosceptics. And I must have, I'm a little bit Eurosceptic. <laughs> some, some will say that's a, uh, an interesting comment, but there we are. Um, and... Um, he then introduced me to people like Teresa Gorman and Tony Marlowe and Nick Budgin, to Richard Boddy, John Wilkinson and uh, Richard Shepherd, who we lost. Um, and without any choice, uh, Mike, will you handle all the media and all the coverage? And that was that. Was that. After they got the whip back and after um, William became leader uh, after the 97 election, 
And um, I was still doing a bit of work for Teddy. And then lots of other members of the network and the then Shadow Cabinet started to say, would I do some media work for them? Um, and then I made half of the Shadow Cabinet working, for, I was working for. And eventually Seb Co came toddling along and said to me, I can make you an offer you can't refuse. And asked me to be the head of news and media uh, for the Conservative Party. And then people like Nick Wood and Amanda all came in. And the rest is really history. Do you know what? You are really bursting a bubble here because um, being a journalist and being a, a media advisor, people portray that, probably people in the business, as some dark art, some special skill that you need. Mm. But what do you say to that? Because you, you I, I, seem to have taken to it like a duck to water by I, the time. I, 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 what I tried to do when I was in the, in the press gallery at the House of Commons um, is just be as straight as possible with guys. And one of the things I used to say to William at the morning meeting, you know, when the press was not usually really Terrible. very, very difficult. And I, and I used to say, well, it could have been worse than that because we found out about that, that and that, that the guys told me in the press gallery. So I could try and address things. But what you had to do is be straight. So I, when, when I left, when William and Ian Douglas Smith took over as leader, I remember absolutely vividly that used to be the, uh, editor at the Times phoned me to say that Ian had sacked David Davis. And I said, well, Ian's in Stockholm. I can't see how that's possible, but I'll try and get hold of him. But I'll be dead straight. It was Phil Webster as the editor at the time. Political editor. And I will be dead straight with you. As far as I'm concerned, no. He phoned me again 20 minutes later, no. I managed to get hold of Ian in Stockholm, who didn't quite tell me what was going on. So then I kind of realised. Um, and then next month, I know Theresa May had been made chairman of the party. David Davis clearly had been sacked, but the only person that had David Davis's number was me. And they expected me to phone David Davis and explain to him. And I, even though I did speak to David, he was in Florida, I think, at the time. I, I'm afraid that was someone else's job. Um, and, I, and then I went and apologised to Phil Webster because I had misled him unintentionally, but I had misled him. And I think that you gain respect and offer people if you're straight. When I'm, as a minister, when you make mistakes, I think you can't make mistakes every day of the week, but when you make mistakes and you say, I've made a mistake and this is, I think people respect that. I hope so. You were a minister. You've done a, a number of jobs. I was interested in something you said in Parliament quite recently. We're talking about British Sign Language mm. and how when you were Minister for the Disabled, you were trying to promote that, but you got constant pushback when you mm. were a minister. I assume that was your civil well, servant. It was mostly Treasury on my own civil servants because everything you say in the perimeter of being a minister, especially as a junior, I think I was a Minister of State at that time, so I was a Deputy Secretary of State to, to Ian, interestingly enough, Ian Duncan Smith. But what, what you, when you propose something or you're trying to push something through, everything goes through the prism of treasury and costs. And they kept arguing that the cost implication of having a fourth language, which British Sign Language is now going to become in the next few months, will happen, was hadn't been costed and this couldn't happen, etc. And I said that you don't understand. For these people, it's their only language. So some people would be able to lip me. It's quite difficult lipping me, not least because of the lisps, but it's and I use too much slang as well often, but for someone who is signing, that is their only language, and you're excluding them in society from the whole group of people. Um, you can't get an O-level in BSL, you can't get an A-level, and you will now, because with the help of 
uh, Rosie, um, and and to be fair, Chloe country. Smith, Chloe Smith, the minister that's got the job I was being pushed back on. And the reason I think we've managed to do it is that the Disability Act is much stronger now than it was. And so there was no money resolution for the backbench bill that went through the other night. And so we'll get it through. Uh, 18th of March, it will come back to the Commons for its last uh, report of third reading, goes to the Lords, and will be law, law by the summer. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, I was looking at other things that you had um, been doing in Parliament. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about in May, <laughs> in May 2021, you tabled an early day motion stating, as the UK has left the European Union, the UK should now leave the Eurovision Song Contest. Do you stand by that? Absolutely, because the European Song Contest is the most political thing that would touch most people's lives. I mean, we all sit and watch it. We all know we're going to come last. You all know that Greece is going to vote for Cyprus and the whole of the Eastern Bloc until what's going on at the, and obviously recently. But at the end of the day, I don't think that many of the British public know that we pay for the Eurovision Song Contest. So How? The it, taxpayer? The taxpayer pays for it, and that's the only reason that we're always in the final. We can't not qualify for the final. We qualify for the final. So countries pay for their place? Yes. Now, other countries that don't pay so much have to go for a qualification, and so they don't get into the final. And the other thing is Australia in Europe. I, didn't, I wasn't very good at school, but I didn't think Australia was in Europe. And yet, Australia is in Europe, and I'm like, this is balmy. Now, we all sit there and have a pizza as a family and have a laugh, but I think there's better money spent by the British taxpayer. And if they want us in, let's get there on merit. We know we won't get there on merit, we'll be lost. Not because we can't sing, not because we don't do good songs, because it's full of politics. Do you think there's any chance of us not taking part in the Eurovision Song Contest? Only if I get my way. <laughs> do you think there's any chance of you getting your way? <laughs> I, I think we might have a few more different priorities at the moment, but the BBC pay from the licence fee holder is where it comes from. So it's a tax, uh, the licence fee is a tax. Um, and at the end of the day, if enough people say, I don't want my money used for that. But I don't think many people realise it. Occasionally they slip it out. Terry Wogan did it when he was brilliant at doing it, wasn't he? He was just slipping out and say, and this is why we're here, because British taxpayers pay for it. And then it just washes over. But it's, it's bonkers, really. Mike Penning? What a, what, what I say? really wanted to interview you, and I'm because I thought it would be entertaining. It's been more entertaining um, and more interesting than I imagined. So, well, you need to come to Twickenham with me in the next couple of weeks where I'm playing in a charity rugby match, full contact rugby. I'm 65 this year. My wife thinks I'm bonkers as well, but don't worry. Mike Penning, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the GB News Real Me podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And you can join me every Monday to Thursday from midday live on GB News for The Briefing, your hour-long dose of political analysis.